Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. So I remember uh, the first ever Colorado 14er that I ever summited. It was uh, Snowmass, because why start with an easy one? That would be foolish. We wanted to just go for it. And it was a Centennial Covenant men's backpacking trip. Uh, big trip. There were three of us that went on the trip. Um, and of the three of us that went, two of us decided to, to try for the summit of Snowmass. We hiked in the day before. We enjoyed an afternoon at that beautiful lake right at the base of the mountain. Got up early before the sun had risen, started our hike. We were well up the gigantic boulder field. You have to scramble up um, before the first rays of sun started creeping over the peaks around us. Uh, and sure enough, me and uh, it was Spencer Jenny. He was the other guy uh, that I was hiking with, for those of you that know Spencer. Uh, sure enough, the two of us, we make it to the summit, you know, not long after the sun has just risen. The Maroon Bells Wilderness Area is visible just on the other side in its gorgeous purple glow. And Spencer and I had brought our jet boil with some fresh coffee grounds. So we sat on the summit we brewed coffee. We spent probably an hour, and it was, it was just endless exclamations of every imaginable type. Like, oh, the cloud is so beautiful. Look at the sunrise. Oh, Spencer, you were such a good climbing partner. No, Carl, you were such a good climbing partner. Oh, the coffee, it's just, oh, it's so warm and delicious. Turns out, when you make it, to the summit of a 14,000-foot mountain with somebody you know and like, and it's a beautiful day, praise is the spontaneous and natural response, right? You, you praise the beauty of the clouds, you praise the sun, you praise the blood pumping through your veins, you praise the warm coffee you're drinking. When you, when you encounter something good and beautiful... Praise is the natural and spontaneous response. It's almost like if you weren't to exclaim praise, you'd get like a soul cramp. It'd be like, ah, ah, something's wrong because I can't let this thing out. What about you? Have you had an experience like this where you've done something wonderful, where you've seen something beautiful, majestic, where you've experienced, been part of something that just, it was just, it was just good. You find yourself stumbling for the words, but you just have to say it. It turns out our world is filled with praise. Humans naturally praise all sorts of things. Lovers praise their beloved. Artists praise masterful pieces of artwork. Authors and educators praise wonderful books and wonderful knowledge. Hikers and climbers praise their favorite mountain peaks. We live in a world filled with spontaneous and natural expressions of praise. And it turns out the Christmas story has an example of this sort of praise the Gospel of Luke, the author, tells us a story about some shepherds who are out minding the sheep sometime in the middle of the night, which I don't know that much about shepherding, but I presume that that 
wasn't a moment of spontaneous and natural praise for them. They were having to stay up late in the middle of the night, care for these sheep. That's what they did. But then suddenly, an angel appears in the sky and they're terrified. Because it turns out, terror is the universally normal response to seeing an angel. Like, read throughout scripture, angel shows up, first response, terror. You've been warned in case you don't know what to do if that happens to you. But the angels, they're here to help. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. To which the shepherd said, oh, okay, I won't be. <laughs> do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David... A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then there's some more angels, and they sing. So I presume more angels singing makes even more terror among the shepherds, but they've been told not to be afraid, so they're trying to take deep breaths and calm down. And the angels say to them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Bethlehem. Here's the GPS coordinates. I'm sure they gave them. Make sure nobody got lost. And you're going to go to this manger, and there's going to be a baby. The baby's going to be wrapped in cloths. And the shepherds go, and sure enough, exactly what the angels said is exactly what they saw. And this was amazing. The story continues. When the shepherds had seen the baby Jesus, they spread the word concerning what they had been told, what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds, just like me on the summit of Snowmass Mountain, the shepherds were like, I just, I gotta, I gotta get the word out. I, I need to spread the word. They were praising God. They were glorifying God. If that didn't come out, like if you saw angels and the angels told you about something and it was just like you said and you didn't express that, that's more than a soul cramp. That is like debilitating. Oh, you. The shepherds have a moment of the most overwhelming, spontaneous, natural, uh, inevitable. You cannot contain it in moment of praise. I want to talk about praise this morning. If you were here the Sunday before Advent, uh, we had a guest preacher, Dave Ward. He did an amazing job talking about the question, how should we praise? How are we supposed to do it? This morning, I want to talk about a similar but different question. I want to say, why? Why do we praise God. Why is it that praise and worship is part of every single one of our Sunday gatherings as well as almost every Sunday gathering of any group of Jesus followers around the world? Why is it that praise is such a natural response? Why is it that scripture commands us to praise in many, many different places? I want to talk this morning about why we praise. As I was thinking about this question, I came across an awesome book. I highly recommend it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, his little book, Reflections on the Psalms. 
If you want to understand praise, the Psalms are a good book to go to. The Psalms have been called by many people a handbook of praise and worship, which actually, just as a way of note, there's actually a lot of different words. Praise, uh, worship, uh, thanksgiving, uh, gratitude, that biblically speaking are largely synonymous with one another. So if you hear me using some of those words interchangeably, we're really kind of talking about the same thing. But when Lewis um, is reflecting on the nature of praise in his reflections on the Psalms, he makes an observation that when I read it, I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. And basically he says, okay, there's these spontaneous expressions of praise. I I can get that. Like, I get that. That's awesome. But let's be honest. I don't always feel like spontaneously praising. As a matter of fact, sometimes I feel like doing things very different than spontaneously praising. I could think of some examples of other things I'd like, but I'll leave that to your imagination. And then, when you read the Psalms, you also find example after example, not of spontaneous praise, but of the command to praise. As Jesus followers, as faithful God-fearers, we must praise God. And Lewis scratches his head at that a little bit, and he goes... Why the command? What's that all about? I want to read his words because they were really good. Here's how he captures his sort of struggle with understanding praise and specifically the command to praise. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more, in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. And why? Incidentally, did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise him? Even in telling whales, snowstorms, etc. to go on doing what they would certainly do whether we told them or not. Here was my sort of short summary of what Lewis said. If scripture and specifically the Psalms command praise, then it it raises some weird questions, namely that among humans, oh, I don't have my, that's right, I'm on my own, this this is a big day for me. Among humans, we detest what for God we demand. If a human commands us to praise them, we go, whoa, and yet we understand scripture commanding us to praise 
God. Huh. So why do we do it? Why do we praise God? I want to try and answer that question by thinking about three different things. I want us to answer that question by shifting our thinking about praise, by understanding the function of praise, and by understanding the source, the, 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 the beginning place from which our praise grows. So, here we go. Shift our thinking. Like we said, the world is filled with praise. You don't, have to, you don't have to think hard to come up with examples from your own life or examples from the world around you of people who praise things that are good, right, beautiful, lovely, praiseworthy, right? Once we start envisioning all the different types of praise that we might hear, uh, you can separate them into two kind of distinct categories. There are praises given to persons and praises given to objects. Now let's imagine I'm a professor, I'm, a, I'm teaching a class, and I give an assignment to my students, and one of my students turns in the assignment. It's an essay. One of my students writes an essay. Many of you say, Carl, I don't have to imagine that. This is what I do in life all the time. Now, I get the essay and I look at it, and it is abundantly clear from any objective evaluation that this is one of the best essays, not only that this student has ever written, but that any student I've ever encountered has ever written. Can you picture that? You're holding that essay. You've read that essay. And now let's say, in response, I give that essay a C-. We have two observations to make. First of all, this is going to be rather insulting and frustrating to the student who I have failed to properly praise or, uh, you know, celebrate their good work. My inaccurate response is hurtful to the person who deserved praise. Second, it also calls into question whether or not I really am qualified to be an educator if I could hold such a brilliant piece of writing and fail to recognize its quality. When we think about praise of persons, there is an interpersonal relational element that colors the whole thing. And that's one of the questions about why is it that we praise God? Because if we think about God, the person commanding our praise, that interpersonal element, that's the thing that to Lewis, that, that resonated with me, maybe to you, kind of makes me go, uh, what's going on here? If, however, we think about praise for an object, let's say you're in an art museum, Let's say you're at a poetry reading. Let's say you're standing on the summit of a 14,000-foot peak looking at a beautiful vista. If I had gotten to that summit and I looked around and gone, meh, the mountain would not care. It would not be offended. It, it would not somehow cease to be a 14,000-foot mountain. The only conclusion we could draw if I failed to respond appropriately would be that maybe I am a person of such depravity in my soul that I can't even appreciate this. When we praise an object, we do it not because it needs or wants praise, but because praise is the appropriate response it's the response that shows awareness, intelligence. It, it's the right, good, natural response to any 
beautiful thing. Lewis, in his book, suggests, if you want to understand the command to praise God, you need to think about that command not the way you think about praise for people. You need to think of it rather the way you think about praise for an object. Namely, God doesn't need our praise. The scripture tells us that in many times and ways. It's not like God is sitting there going like, oh, if not enough people praise me, then maybe I won't be sure of myself and it won't stroke my ego enough and I'll just be very sad. God's not doing that. God commands praise because if God is indeed the creator of all life, and if God is indeed the creator of everything that is good and beautiful, then praise is the only natural response to that God. Lewis actually says it in the negative way. He says, to fail to give God praise is to fail to comprehend life itself. The only reason it would be a challenge to me to respond to the command to praise God would be if I don't understand who God is, namely, the one who made everything worth praising in the first place. And sure enough, people who are more comfortable with praise of God, it seems, are the same people who are more comfortable with giving praise all that much more generously. When done right, praise for God increases our appreciation, our praise of, our celebration, our joy of all that is good in the world. So, why do we praise God? I think the first reason is because praise is the natural, the normal, the appropriate response to anything that is good, and God is the creator of all that is good. Second thought, if we want to understand why we should praise, I think we should understand the function of praise. In our sort of, in our sort of negative example of the dictator demanding praise, the function of praise seems to be this really gross, you know, egotistical, self-centered thing. What about in Scripture? I remember the second time I summited a Colorado 14,000-foot mountain. This time with a group of high school students on our annual adventure trip. We had been camping at Hartenstein Lake in the Collegiate Peaks Wilderness area. We got up early and we started hiking up Mount Yale. Now, this was a very big group this time. So we were doing uh, what I like to call the accordion approach to hiking, where our group sort of spreads out, and then you gotta bring them back together. And then it sort of spreads out, and then you got to bring it back together. And therefore, it took us a little longer to make it up to the summit. We get up above treeline, and this is early in the season, so there's still quite a bit of snow in that high alpine meadow we're crossing. And so I start hiking ahead because I want to make sure we don't lose the trail because a lot of the, the Karens have been buried. We've got to find the way. Now, Mount Yale... The approach to the summit is kind of in like a bowl. So you can't see much of anything for almost the whole hike up until you get up to this ridge, which still has like these boulders around it. So you climb up a final little boulder, you finally get to the summit, and boom, the beautiful vista of all the collegiate peaks open up before you. A few of my fellow climbers are in the room this morning. (laughs) So I get to the summit. 
and immediately I see a sky filled with dark clouds. And almost as if on cue, I might be slightly over-dramatizing this, but maybe not. Almost as if on cue, a thunder clap sounds, and I think, we need to get off this mountain. (laughs) So instead of sitting and enjoying the summit, praising its beauty with my fellow climbers, instead of getting to experience that joy, I turn around and I have to do the very unjoyful thing of saying, sorry, we're not getting to the summit today. We're heading back down right now. As I think about those two experiences, sitting for an hour drinking coffee and enjoying that moment, not even barely being able to stand there, but having to turn around and tell people, sorry, you don't get to summit. Here's here's some of the things I learned about the function of praise First of all, praise actually completes our enjoyment. If climbing a mountain is something I enjoy, sitting at the top and talking about how awesome it is completes the enjoyment. Telling you right now about how awesome it is actually completes the enjoyment of the experience. And conversely, praise removed or denied, it's enjoyment is diminished. Because I didn't get to share that praise, I missed out on a little something of the best of that experience. So if we think about why we praise God, well, one of the reasons God commands us to praise is so that our enjoyment might be completed. I think we get a little glimpse of this in the response of Mary in Luke's Christmas story. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. As though that act of remembering and thinking and turning over, that internal act of praise to God is completing Mary's enjoyment of this incredible thing she is experiencing. Why do we praise God? Because praise is the appropriate response to anything good and beautiful, and God is the creator of all goodness and beauty. Why the command to praise? Because praise completes our joy of any and every good and perfect gift God gives us. But last but not least, if we want to understand why we should praise God, we need to understand the source of all praise. Um, This text, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, uh, Luke's telling of the Christmas story, um, there would be a lot of moments I might be tempted to point to as the central uh, uh, intention, the central message of the whole thing. I mean, it's really tempting to be like, angel choir. Like, if that's not the highlight, literally, it's high and it's light. It's the highlight. Like, If that's not the highlight of the text, I don't know what is. Um, The the miraculous birth of this baby to Mary and Mary's like loving response, like that's that's gotta be important, right? But it turns out Luke wrote this story in a specific structure and it's actually the third time in his gospel, just chapters one and two, have three different stories in this same structure and they're called announcement narratives. And do you know what the center, most important point of an announcement narrative is? It's the announcement. 
See, that's why they call it an announcement narrative. <laughs> the announcement given in this story, even though the angels announcing it are amazing, and even though the birth itself is clearly really important, Luke wrote in such a way to make the announcement itself the center point, the highlight, the circle, the star, the underline. And here's the announcement the angels gave. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Namely, that's my addition. That wasn't in the original. Namely, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The main thing Luke's trying to say is that a Savior is being born this day. Here's the interesting thing. Um, if I reflect on this idea that, that Luke's main point is that a Savior is being born. This is about salvation. The arrival of a Savior means someone needs saving. When I think about... Uh, spontaneous expressions of praise. One of the kind of quintessential types of story that came to mind, um, you know, that, that we even saw on the news not long ago, it's these video, this video footage that comes out after a natural disaster. Because inevitably, after, say, a hurricane, somebody is stuck on the roof of their house. They either weren't able or for some other reason chose not to get out. And so now they're stuck on the roof of their house, literally fearing for their lives. And the helicopter comes in and the Coast Guard lowers the guy down on the wire and the basket down. And the person on the roof climbs into the basket and the basket is raised back up. And inevitably, the moment the person who was just rescued gets into the helicopter, what do they do? They throw their arms around the Coast Guard. They're weeping and they say, thank you so much for saving me. If we saw that video and they were like, what took you so long? <laughs> this would not make sense. We'd have, to, we'd have to wonder about what sort of ungratefulness is in their hearts. Let me ask you, do you think of yourself as someone who needs saving? I know that when I wake up in the morning, I often like to think of myself as someone who has things put together. I am good enough. I am smart enough. I am strong enough. I have got what I need. I am resourceful. I am ready to do hard work. I like to think of myself as someone who's self-sufficient, who's capable, who's independent. I struggle sometimes to think of myself as somebody utterly in need of, utterly dependent on, utterly unable to rescue myself from that which plagues me or hurts me. Like Doug was saying, those things in my heart that, if I'm honest, I just know aren't the way they're supposed to be. I love to think that I'm smart enough to figure it out, but if Jesus, if, if the center of the gospel text is that a Savior is born, it challenges me to say, do I wake up in the morning Acknowledging I'm a person in need of a Savior. Turns out Scripture's been preparing us for this idea from the very beginning. 
I was reminded of the book of Proverbs chapter 3, which exhorts its reader to trust in the Lord with all your heart, to lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. I could summarize it this way. God commands us to praise not because he needs it, but because we need it. We need the reminder that he is the one who is the source of all that is good in our lives. So why do we praise? I think this story in the Gospel of Luke tells us that we praise because it's the appropriate response to anything good and beautiful in life, especially when we realize that God is the giver of every one of those gifts. We praise because it's actually a gift to us. It completes our joy. And we're commanded to praise because we need it. We need the reminder of our daily dependence on God's presence and provision in our lives. We need praise so that we know we are people in need of a Savior. And so as always, we're going to ask, so what is your move going to be? What does it look like as I go into this week leading up to Christmas? What does it look like to cultivate more and more spontaneous and natural praise in my life? And here's what I suggest. We do that by coming face to face with our need for a Savior. And then we do that by coming face to face with that Savior. I'm going to have the worship team come back up, and I'd like to invite you to spend some time right now with me in prayer. If we're going to come face to face with our need for a Savior, the traditional Christian word for that is confession. Our need for a Savior is made obvious by any small or large brokenness, woundedness, failure, shortcoming present in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. And the more acutely aware we are of our need for a Savior, the more overwhelmingly grateful we will be when we're reminded that a Savior has already been born. Would you pray with me? God, to begin, we enter into a time of confession. God, help us come face to face with our need for you. God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've done it with the thoughts we think. We've done it with the words we speak. We've done it with the deeds we've done. God, we've sinned against you and others both in the wrong things we have done and in the right things that we left undone. We admit we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We acknowledge we have not loved our neighbor 
as ourselves. God, help us in honesty and humility to come face to face with our need for a Savior. And yet, God, we pray, um, even in the heaviness of confession, we pray as people who have a great hope, a hope based not on anything we have done or could do or may do, but, God, on what you have already done for us. Help us, God, to come face to face having confessed our sins. Help us come face to face with you, our Savior. The Apostle Paul wrote, In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. But therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God, may we be filled with an abundance of praise for the good news that any sin and any brokenness, any false shortcoming or failure in our lives, you have forgiven. God, you have healed us from our wounds. God, you are growing us up into the person you have designed us to be. God, help us daily to come face to face with our need for a Savior, not so that we might be beaten down in sorrow, but God, so that you might lift us up. May that be true for each of us right now in this moment. God, may that be true for each of us every day as we prepare to celebrate fully your birth on Christmas Day. And God, may that need and may that salvation cause us to spontaneously and naturally and exuberantly give you praise every day of our lives. We pray this all in the mighty name of God the Father who created us and loves us. In the precious name of Jesus the Son who came to be with us and died to forgive us. And in the name of Holy Spirit who is with us, strengthening us each 
and every day. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.